This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. New Books in Economics, brought to you by EAEPE, the European Association for Evolutionary Political Economy. Welcome back to New Books in Economics, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Andrea Bernardi from Oxford Brooks University. Today, I'm with Dr. Simon Bowmaker from the um, New York University, and in particular from Stern School of Business where Simon is Professor of Economics. And today we are here to talk about his latest book. This was published in 2019 by the MIT Press. And it is a very intriguing book. The title is When the President Calls, Conversations with Economic Policymakers. Welcome, Simon. Thank you very much for your time. Can you tell us something about your current and past affiliations and maybe also about the origin of this very original book? Thank you for uh, having me on the show. I appreciate it very much. So um, I'm originally from England, where you're based right now. Um, I'm from a place called uh, Sunderland, which is the northeast of England. Um, all my training in economics is from the UK. My undergraduate was University of Aberdeen. Master's was Cambridge. Uh, PhD was University of St. Andrews in Scotland. And I've been living in America for almost 15 years now. I've been teaching it the uh, Stern School of Business um, for 13 of those years. And uh, I began this book quite some time ago, actually. I think it was about seven or eight years ago. Um, the simple idea was, you know, what is it like to, as an economist to, uh, to take your ideas to the very top of uh, policymaking in the United States of America, um, you know, to test your skills, all of those things that you've learned over the years as an economist, you know, bring your ideas um, to the table, to the, to the table in the, in the White House and, uh, to work with the president in trying to, uh, formulate economic policy. So that was the main motivation. Let me say something about the book for those who will be listening. This is a quite large book, almost 700 pages. There are nine, nine sections, one for each president, from Nixon to Trump. So we are talking about 1969 to 2019, 50 years history of the United States. And there are 35 chapters, one for each economic advisor of those nine presidents. So maybe my first question will be, how did you manage to achieve such an impressive group of interviewees? Yeah, that was, I have to say that was a labor of love. I mean, you know, on the one hand, it was it was very, very hard work to get to quite a lot of these people because they're very, very busy. They're quite uh, well known. I mean, some of them are, as you know, sort of household names. 
Um, but I mean, the, the first thing I would always do was was simply to cold call. I mean, I would send an email. Um, I'd write a letter. Um, I'd pick up the phone. You know, I would literally would call them and, and see whether they'd be interested. Um, I would speak with colleagues at work at NYU to see if they'd be willing to, you know, send an email to them or pick up the phone and, and speak to them on my behalf. Um, but one thing that actually is the as the project progressed, um, which was very useful, was the people in the book, my interviewees, were very, very, very generous with their time with me and also were willing to help um, get some of the other people on board in the book. So, I mean, I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, the first interview in the book is, is with uh, George Schultz, um, who had an you know, incredible career in government in America, um, serving you know, uh, in, in, in various you know, huge positions. And he obviously was, was hard to get in touch with in, in, in many ways. And John Taylor, who interviewed, spoke with him and arranged the interview. Um, more recently, right at the end of the book, as you saw, I interviewed Kevin Hassett and Mick Mulvaney from the Trump administration. And you know, very kindly, Arthur Laffer, who I interviewed, Laffer, as you know, worked with Reagan, um, also worked with Nixon as well. Um, Arthur Laffer was very generous, very kind, and was willing to write to Kevin Hassett and Mick Mulvaney to ask if they'd be willing to be on board of the project. Um, also, Larry Summers, um, you know, that, that was hard work to, to, to get the interview. Uh, Jason Furman helped me with that. Um, Nick Brady, Glenn Hubbard helped. Gene Sperling, Alan Kruger helped. Um, so I'm really grateful to the interviewees, uh, not just for giving their time to uh, to speak with me, but also helping get some of the other, other people on board. And you started chapter with a short note on the education of your interviewees. And you can easily notice that uh, most of them studied in, in a relatively small group of top institutions, which is uh, good, of course. But are there also any implications of these? Yeah, so that's a, a really great question. I think that's a question which has been bandied around at the moment quite a lot in economics um, because there's a... There's a view that economics these days is becoming quite an, uh, an elitist, elitist discipline, um, that there's a so-called, you know, the top six universities or economics departments in America are dominating across a number of dimensions. Um, and you could say, hey, well, look, there's a tendency that, you know, economics is becoming very insular. Um, now, if you translate that to policymaking, you would say, well, look, maybe the president is not really having the opportunity to hear from other good economists and to hear and receive other good views or good ideas. Um, in other words, you know, he is not receiving perhaps a, a greater uh, diversity of views as one might uh, would like. Um, I think that's potentially a, a controversial view. I mean, as you sort of hinted at at the beginning there, I mean, there are clearly at the top six economics departments, there are some amazing, amazingly brilliant economists um, who kind of, you know, shape the discipline in, in, a, in a serious way. And, you know, it, it goes without saying that, you know, they might well be the first people that you'd bring to the table to speak to the president. Um, but at the same time, I think many of us might be quite sympathetic to that view that, uh, you know, there are other 
you know, economists doing excellent work at other very good universities who don't get the same chance to, uh, to speak with the president. And besides the, the education, what else uh, those 35 advisors have in common, if you could say? Yeah, so something a little bit more abstract. I would say, look, they, they simply had a great passion for serving the country and a great passion, at least the, you know, the, the, the straight pure economists I spoke with, the passion for the field, the passion for economics. Um, I would say as well, something that they had in common was once they got to Washington, um, all of them experienced a very, very steep learning curve. Um, what did I mean by that? I mean, sort of, you know, they all had to grapple with the frustrations of dealing with the politics. Um, the fact that, you know, politics more often than not trumps economics in Washington. Um, they also had to grapple with the idea that often they would be confronting issues which, you know, were outside of their area of expertise. Um, you know, I spoke with Edward Lazier, Eddie Lazier, who's at uh, Stanford University, who served Bush 43. You know, he said, you can't just say to the president, I'm sorry, Mr. President, that's outside of my area of expertise. <laughs> um, you know, you can't say that. You have to find an answer. Um, and that was a commonality, you know, in academia, you know, sometimes you have 18 months, two years to find an answer to a question on a research project. When you're serving the president, that president needs to know the answer right now. You can't wait a week or a month or two months and work on a project. Um, it has to be at that, at that moment in time. So there's a lot of pressure um, to get the right answer as quickly as possible. And that was a commonality. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So the book is uh, the history of uh, those advisors, but also indirectly about uh, those nine pres presidents. Um, who do you think was more docile or more refractory to the advices that they were receiving? Yeah. So I think there's a couple of answers to that. There's a more general answer, which is, at the end of the day, there are some, some presidents who are not quite interested in economic policy as they are in, for example, foreign policy. And there are two people who come to mind there. Number one is uh, Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon was predominantly interested in foreign policy, and he was less interested in economic policy. And that came through very clearly in the book when I spoke with uh, Paul Volcker, Uh, when, I, when I spoke with uh, George Schultz and also speaking with Art Laffer about that too. Um, to a lesser extent, Bush 41 was also someone very interested in foreign policy and to a lesser extent, you know, less interested in uh, economic policy. But if you had to, you know, ask me, is there a particular president who didn't seem to listen as much as his advisor wanted, I would say Jimmy Carter. Um, so I had three advisors who I spoke with who, who worked with um, uh, Jimmy Carter. So it was Charlie Schultz, uh, Michael Blumenthal, and uh, Stu Eisenstadt. And they all pretty much 
agreed that Jimmy Carter was, was quite autocratic and had very strong views that he stayed with. Um, it was very, very difficult to uh, kind of get Jimmy Carter to change his views no matter what they said. Um, some of them, you know, they suggested it had something to do with his engineering background, that he had a sort of an engineer's faith in statistics. Um, he wanted everything to be uh, comprehensive, you know, whether it was comprehensive energy reform or whatever it would be. Um, he didn't quite understand the trade-offs that were inherent in, in economic policymaking. Um, try as the, the advisors did, they, they never could quite convince him of that. So I think Carter is my answer to your to your question. And how did you how how did they happen to be called by those presidents? How does it work? Is it predominantly network chance, or maybe the special motivation of your interviewees that wanted to serve as yeah. advisors? So there's probably maybe you know maybe one or two got the call out of the blue, um, but I would say overall most of those advisors had a good idea that at some stage they would get the call. Um, and there's a bunch of reasons for that. Number one is, for example, you may have worked on the campaign of the president. If you work on the campaign, there's a relatively high probability that you will get that call to serve in the administration. Um, I'll give you two examples. You know, Austin Goolsby, who worked with um, President Obama on his campaign, Obviously, was 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 called to the uh, called to the White House. Um, Glenn Hubbard, who worked with Bush forty three on his on his campaign as his main economic advisor, again he was called to the White House. Um, maybe you get to you know you're, you're known to the president through your media work. Um, I'll give you two examples: Mary Wiedenbaum and Marty Feldstein, who advised uh, President Reagan as the, the chairs of the Council of Economic Advisors, they'd done a lot of media work, um, a lot of writings in you know, the Wall Street Journal, they'd done ra radio work, um, they testified in Congress, et cetera, and that caught the attention of President Reagan, and he called them to the White House. Um, and of course, some of them, it simply worked in previous administrations, um, and they had a reputation for their, for their good work. Um, one person that comes to mind is, someone who sadly passed away a few weeks ago. That's Paul O'Neill. Um, Paul O'Neill was Secretary of the Treasury for Bush 43. He'd also worked for President Ford and had you know, garnered a, a strong reputation at the OMB under Ford. So there's a, there's a bunch of different ways in which you get that call. And, uh, you know, so, as I say, sometimes it might be out of the blue, but more often than not, they, they have an idea that, they will get a call because they, they're known to the people who work for the president. It makes sense. And now in those 50 years that your book covers, uh, can you tell us something about the way in which the relationship between the presidents and the advisors has changed or evolved in any specific direction? Because now we live in the so-called age of populism where the relationship between the experts and the politicians is a difficult one, very tricky one. And this is true in economics, it's true in public health, it's true in many, many fields, for example, in dealing with uh, climate change. So in this field, in economics, uh, can, did you spot any evolution of this uh, way of interacting between the advisors and the presidents? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say until the election of President Trump, 
Um, you know, while economists have become more pervasive in Washington, um, their role and their relationship with the president has remained pretty much the same. Um, I mean, what do I mean by that? They're bringing, you know, this this very powerful, this very important, and I would argue as well, common framework to issues, um, and they're still holding a stand, you know, a high standard of evidence to the data. Um, you know, over that fifty years, I mean, the political winds changed. Um, but ultimately, what was the job of the economists when they were speaking with the advisors? It was to provide the, 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 the president with what I'm calling you know, unvarnished objective advice, to give the president the facts, um, to stop policy pr- proposals, which you know, might be, if you like, unhelpful, they might be costly, they might be inefficient. Um, so I would say, broadly speaking, uh, their role, their relationship as advisors with the president has remained fundamentally. It's remained roughly the same. Um, that said, and this is quite an interesting idea, um, which was you know someone in the, in the book pointed out to me. Presidents now have access to iPads, <laughs> um, so presidents now you know have a lot of information at their fingertips, there's information coming from one direction to, from one direction to another, um, which can actually cause some problems for, for advisors because, you know, presidents might be, you know, reading something on the, in the, in, on the iPad, on the internet, uh, getting information which contradicts what they've been <laughs> presented by the, by the advisors. Um, you know, but, so that's something which, 40, 50 years ago, maybe you're thinking about working for Nixon. That would be less of an issue. But today, you know, we, we both know information is highly accessible. And, uh, you know, that applies to the present as well. There is a beautiful um, um, reference in the foreword by mm. the director of London School of Economics. And she wrote that, Harry Truman famously said that he wanted a one-handed <laughs> economist because each one he sought advice from said on the one hand and on the other hand. <laughs> so that's right. Is it a problem of that's economists right. or is is it normal that a scientist has this uh, point of view? I think as economists, we're always being criticized for you know you know we we give an answer. Uh, we even, as, you know, as economics professors, you know, we, we teach our students, um, you know, I'm teaching my MBA students, you know, like a, a firms and markets class. You know, we always begin by saying, you know, many answers to questions in economics are simply two words. It depends. Okay. So you <laughs> say it depends. Now, a good economist knows what it depends upon. So I guess, you know, when, you, when you're working in Washington advising the president, um, it is true that things do depend, but the good economists in Washington are able to tell you what it depends upon. So that's why they're saying, on the one hand, something, and on the other hand, something else. Well, instead of asking you about your future book, because you're just, uh, you've just <laughs> ended a very large book, maybe can you tell yeah. us something about your, your previous three other books, uh, just uh, the topic, the title, so that my, our listeners might uh, find them? Yeah. 
I, I would love to do another book. Um, I have to figure out what it, you know what would be the next subject. Maybe I could do something I don't know European. So I've I've spent quite a lot of time in America speaking with you know uh, American policymakers, and as I'll talk to you in a second, researchers in America and researchers teachers in, in America. Maybe I could do some European. Um, my last book was called The Art and Practice of Economics Research, Lessons from Leading Minds. So I interviewed uh, 25 very prominent economists about quite simply how they they went about their their day-to-day work as researchers in economics. Um, So that was a a, a very productive project, which I enjoyed enormously. And I I got to speak to to some amazing economists. Book I did before that was was called the the heart of teaching economics lessons from leading minds and that was um, again it's just simply you know speaking with prominent economists about how they go about their their daily lives as teachers of economics as opposed to researchers um, so I guess I you know where does the current book fit in I mean I'd done teaching I then did research in economics and then I thought it'd be a cool idea to think about how you do uh, policy making in economics. Um, what I didn't realize at the time was it's it would be you know it was a lot harder to put the, the more recent book together. It just took much 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 longer um, getting in touch with the right people, um, you know, crafting the right questions. It, it was very very hard. Um, you know, it's it was fifty years of economic history, um, and it, it was a far more ambitious project. I guess for the next one, maybe I could speak with people who have, you know, taken ideas in economics and applied them to, you know, solving, if you, you know, in quotes, uh, real world problems, maybe someone like Paul Milgram who works on auctions, uh, uh, something like that. I think maybe that might be a, another book. We look forward to reading your next book. In the meantime, congratulations for this book, which is, by the way, also enriched by amazing pictures of the economic advisors in action, in physical action, in a room with the presidents. Thank you very much, Simon, for your time. We spoke with Dr. Simon Bowmaker about his recent book, When the President Calls, Conversations with Economic Policymakers, published by MIT Press in 2019. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. New Books in Economics, brought to you by EAEPE, the European Association for Evolutionary Political Economy.